Well, good morning, everybody. We are in week three of our series going through the book of Philippians, which is a bit confusing because the book of Philippians is actually a letter, a letter written by a man named Paul the Apostle to Christians in a city called Philippi. Now, he's writing this letter in the early 60s AD, about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and about 10 years after Paul's first visit to Philippi, where he planted the first church in Philippi. Now, in the early 60 ADs, the Roman Empire is ruled by a man named Nero. He is the Caesar. And his title, one of his titles in Greek, is the word kurios. It would be kurios Nero. Kurios is translated as Lord. The reason why that's important is uh, that is the same Greek term that you read in the New Testament for the kurios Jesus, the Lord Jesus. So within Philippi, you would have two competing narratives. There is the story of Kurios Nero, the Caesar of the Roman Empire, and then this new story about Kurios, the Lord Jesus. So Paul planted this church there um, roughly 10 years subsequent to the writing of this letter. And if you recall, we looked at those events because Paul had three radical encounters with three radically different types of individuals. There was a businesswoman named Lydia, a girl who was... um, oppressed by both spiritual powers and earthly powers. And then there's a Roman jailer, most likely an ex-Roman soldier. And from that, those three encounters and probably a few others, the first church in Philippi is born. Now, Paul, 10 years after that event, is writing a letter to these church, this church and these Christians, and he's writing it from a familiar location, prison. It's a common theme in his life. He is in chains and in prison for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the prior two weeks dealt with sort of the formal introduction, and now we get into the formal content and exhortation to the actual Christians in Philippi. Paul says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now, a little bit of a heads up. Uh, We're only dealing with these two verses today, 27 and 28, and then the next slide will have 29 and 30, and that's it. So just four verses, but there's a lot to unpack here. I want to focus in on this introductory phrase, the only, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That phrase, let your manner of life be, those six words in English are translated from one word in Greek. So there's this one word in Greek that's trying to communicate a lot. And so in English, it takes like six, give or so, words, let your manner of life be. But what I want to do is show you how this one word is translated in different English translations. So you could kind of begin to feel what they're trying to accomplish in translating this one word. So in the ESV, we just read it, it says, let your manner of life be worthy. At New American Standard, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy, NIV. And then the New King James, let your conduct be worthy. Now, if you review all of those, you can see that they're they're saying the same thing. Let the manner of your life conduct yourself. It's this idea of behaving or conducting yourself or walking in a manner worthy of something. I want to show you another translation. This is the new living. It says, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Now in that one, it's very similar, but there's this whole introduction of like this whole other phrase, right? What's this whole citizens of heaven thing? Like, it seems like it's just inserted randomly because everywhere else just agrees that it's conduct yourself in a manner worthy. Okay, so all of those are just translating this one Greek word, polytheistai. And beneath it, the let your manner of life be, that's the ESV translation of this one word, polytheistai. And all of those translations are great. Like translations, the translators do great jobs. The word literally means like walk in a manner worthy or conduct yourself in a worthy manner or behave in such a manner. Go about your life. What's important though is that when we encounter this one word, polytheistai, in the ancient literature, more often than not, it has a direct connotation dealing with how you conduct yourselves in regard to the city. Um, And usually it has a connotation of um, dealing with the moral, ethical, political, and cultural domain. So how do you live, how do you live in light of the cultural, political, kind of religious, cultural norms of the day? And so um, it's a great translation to just say, let your conduct be worthy, but it usually has this, this dealing with the place you live, particularly the city, the kind of empire, whatever it might be. Now, you don't need to know Greek to kind of see that, because when I say polytheistai, the root of that word is polis, polis, like metropolis. It's the city. So embedded in the word is this connotation. Yes, it means live in, conduct yourself in such a manner, but embedded into the world, it's in the word is conduct yourself in a manner regarding the city. It's cultural, ideological, moral, ethical norms. And so this is where it gets interesting though, is because Paul is saying this to people who are in Philippi. And Philippi is a Roman colony. They are not by nature a part of the Roman Empire. They're taken over, and then Rome wants to propagate Roman life in this city. And so what they did historically, at least in the case of Philippi, is they repositioned a bunch of ex-Roman soldiers, veterans there. So they give these soldiers property and and living space, and they say, you go about there, we're going to take care of you, but as you're in this colony of Rome, we want you to propagate Roman laws, customs, ideology, our way of life, because we want this colony to become thoroughly Roman in the cultural sense. And so, if you were to hear the word pithuistai, polytheistai, in Philippi, you would be thinking first and foremost about Rome. Live my life in a manner worthy of Roman citizenship, or citizenship in this Roman colony, Philippi. And Roman citizenship was something to be sought after. So if you're in Philippi, you either have it or you likely want to obtain it. And so if you're a citizen or you just want to obtain it, you would polytheistai, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of Rome. You want to spread the, the, the kind of culture, the ideology, and the norms of the Roman Empire. Now, there are two competing sort of citizenships now taking place in Philippi. Because you have the Roman Empire and Curias Nero, Lord Nero, but now you have also another invading force, namely a force of heaven, the kingdom of God. Paul has planted a church here. And Paul is telling the Christians implicitly in this verse, but explicitly later in chapter 320, that you ought to behave as citizens of heaven. So even though you are citizens of Rome, 
or you live here in Philippi, you ought to behave in a way that reflects your citizenship in heaven. And so you have these like these, these two spheres in which you live in. You can live in the sphere of uh, the Roman Empire and a colony of Roman Philippi, and also you have this citizenship in heaven. Now, with citizenship in the ancient world, the Roman world, much like our own, there's, there's privileges and duties associated with that. So uh, if you were a Roman citizen, there was a lot of privileges wrapped up into that. Like a lot of good would come your way. One, you could vote. You couldn't vote if you weren't a Roman citizen. You could vote. You could uh, uh, you hold public office. You would have certain rights to a fair trial that others were not afforded. You had property rights, ownership rights. You, um, your children would automatically be born Roman citizens. Uh, and maybe, maybe probably one of the best ones is that you couldn't, you couldn't be killed in the worst possible of ways. So if you are found guilty of a crime and you're a Roman citizen, you're not gonna be crucified. You're not gonna be killed in the worst manner. That was reserved for the most vile, treasonous criminals and slaves. And so for the most part, Roman citizens were never crucified. There's a few rare exceptions, but even in those instances, it's, it's, it's looked down upon. So we have the documents from a guy named Cicero in 70, roughly 70 BC who's heard news that a Roman citizen was crucified and he's writing basically to condemn it and say this is essentially illegal activity what took place. So for the most part, if you're a Roman citizen, you get tons of benefits, tons of positives, and even if you mess up, at least if you're guilty, you're not gonna get crucified. And because of that, there was also duties involved. If you're a Roman citizen in Philippi, you're supposed to propagate Roman culture and norms and, and laws and their way of life and their way of thinking. And so there's both privilege and duty. And what Paul is doing is he's telling these Christians who are in a Roman colony that they ought to polytheistai, conduct themselves in a manner worthy, not just, not of Rome, but in a manner worthy of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ. So let's bring all of that back with us to that section. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Conduct yourself in such a way. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, of his kingdom. And then he goes on and specifically addresses unity. He says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Paul's desire is that Christians would be unified, that they would have one mind and one spirit. That language is a little weird to us because we don't use like, we are one mind and one spirit in the modern world much. Um, the ancient world was much more accustomed to it. And especially in a world where there's, there's so much division and disagreement, there's like rare examples where we can point like, oh, this is what one mind and one spirit look, looks like. But I'll give you an example because unfortunately this is probably the best example. But uh, in professional sports, if, if your local team like makes it to the championship, to the finals. Let's say the, um, the Warriors are making it to the finals. 
there's a spirit of oneness that takes over that geographic region. Now, I'm not saying like every last person is a Warriors fan in the area, but all of a sudden there's like this gravitational pull and there's a team spirit that overtakes the area. So that at the games, people are cheering, they're excited. Maybe the the couple days leading up to the finals, you start seeing like Warriors jerseys out. And then, you know, then all of a sudden someone who never wore a jersey gets one because, hey, it's that time of season again. It's, uh, I'm that bandwagon guy. I don't even know who the Warriors are, but everyone else is doing it. They're in the championship. Go Warriors. And that spirit of unity. And so you might even see like flags in people's cars, stuff like that. So what's taking place is that there's this spirit of unity that's uniting the people behind a common goal. And the common goal is that their team would win the championship. What Paul is saying is that the church ought to be a place where there's one mind and one spirit with the goal of not winning a championship, but the advancement of the gospel. There's a unity of spirit and mind in regards to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he uses two phrases to describe that, standing firm and then striving side by side. And those are both probably allusion to military terms. So the idea of standing firm The enemy's coming, but we're the soldiers and we're going to stand firm. We're not going to fear. And we're going to strive together side by side. The word literally means to like toil together. So the enemy's coming. We're not going to be afraid. We're going to stand firm and we're going to get through this together. We're going to toil and struggle together, striving side by side. which is another one of a thousand different ways you could say Christianity is never like a by-yourself activity. You don't do Christianity by yourself. It's always corporate. It's always communal. It's always the people of God. So we're doing this one mind, one spirit, standing firm, striving together side by side. Now, there's something here that, that we kind of just passed over that's, that's, that's deep. When I say, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, we looked at like the, the Greek and the historical context and got into some technical stuff. But after that, what you have to do is actually let that statement sit with you. And then, and then it actually should start to scare you because this is a command of Paul. And he's saying, you ought to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Walk in a manner, you, 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 like, go, go, go. After church today, walk, go walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Like, let me put things in perspective. What could you do to be worthy of the fact that the high king of heaven, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, left heaven to die in agony on a Roman cross for a treasonous bunch so that he could adopt them into his family and forgive them? Like, what could you do to be worthy of that? Do you, do you feel it now? No, you better walk worthy of this. How do you, got any bright ideas? That's, what can you do to be worthy of that? Now, it's interesting that Paul immediately moves on to an issue. So when Paul says walk worthy of the gospel, he immediately then has something in mind. And what did he tell us? Walk in a manner worthy, and you can do this by being of one mind and one spirit, 
with the purpose of advancing the gospel. So be unified. As the body of Christ, be unified. Be in harmony. Be of one mind and one spirit. Now, I'm sure there's other ways in which you could certainly walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. But what's first and foremost, at least what comes out of Paul's mouth in this case, is the unity of the church. And if you think I'm like rhetorically over-exaggerating that, there was once a man, our Lord Jesus, who said, the world will know who we belong to by our love for one another. The world will know that the Father sent the Son, Jesus, by our ability to love one another, by our ability, ability to be one. So the issue of Christian unity is of utmost importance in the scriptures, and there's a reason for it. Let's go back to the first church plant in Philippi. Who was there? The wealthy businesswoman, the girl who was a slave and oppressed by earthly and spiritual powers, and then a Roman jailer who was likely an ex-Roman soldier. Now let's throw in a couple years and some more converts from Jews and Gentiles, and they're having a church service. Like, church gets out, you're hanging out after under the tent. So, like, what do you want to talk about? Like, what is it, how does a Jewish man have a conversation with an ex-Roman soldier? You guys have crucified my loved ones. Roman soldiers crucified Jews. It's like, yeah, what do you want to do after? You want to go, you want to, go to lunch, hang out? Talk about our past, get to know each other? See what you were up to the last 20 years? Nevertheless, Paul is saying the gospel of Jesus Christ is so powerful, it has the ability to unite Lydia, the girl who was a slave, and the Roman jailer. The power of the gospel can unite people who would never in a million years ever come together and be of one mind and one spirit. And Paul in the New Testament's claim is that that is a symbol to the unbelieving world that the gospel is true. And Jesus would say, it is a symbol to the external world that the Son was indeed sent by the Father. The oneness that is created by the gospel of Jesus Christ is a demonstration of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So be of one mind and one spirit. It's incredibly powerful. And then the second half for today. The next two verses. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but you also get to suffer for his sake. This is like the least favorite Bible verse. This is the least highlighted Bible verse. Like you, know, you open up a fortune cookie, you not only get to believe in Jesus, you will suffer for him. Like, what type of daily devotional? You got a little encouraging devotional that you read in the morning? Encouraging thoughts from the Lord. You don't just get to believe, you get to suffer. For his namesake, verse 30, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now, what makes this even more bold is this word for granted here. Charismai. It means to... It means like to generously give a gift. So it's not saying necessary. It's, it's saying more than just, for it has been granted to you that you get to suffer. It's like you have been given this generous gift of the honor of suffering for the name of Christ. Now you might ask at this point, like why would, why would Christians be suffering in the first century Roman world? Um, from a historical point, um, if you began worshiping 
another deity, another god or goddess. She began worshiping Jesus in the Roman Empire. Like, no one would care. I'm going to start worshiping Jesus. No one cares. Great, I'm glad. Do all, worship all you want. But what's distinct about the first Christians is their claim was that we aren't just adding Jesus as another god or deity to a list of all the other gods that are worshiped. No one would care. We got this guy, we got this guy, let's add this Jesus guy. Yeah, I'll worship him too, great. What was distinct was the Christians were saying, we're not adding Jesus to a list. We're tearing up the list and saying that Christ is the only true God. All other gods and goddesses are false gods. He is the only one. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That was, that was offensive then, and it's an offense, it's an offense now. But there's even more, because it's not just that Christ is the only God. Um, if you're Caesar and you're in the Roman Empire, um, you understood that there's gods and goddesses, and all these gods and goddesses had their domains. So there's this sky god and this river god, and there's a god of this mountain range over here. But those weren't a threat, excuse me, because the claim was that you're Caesar, you're on the throne, and the gods have appointed you there, and your authority is over the Roman Empire, the kingdom of Rome. And so Rome has an earthly ruler. It has an earthly ruler, a human, that sits on the throne and rules. So if Caesar hears that some person is worshiping this new god of this mountain range over here, it's like, I don't care. Or even so that there's these Christians going around saying, yeah, there's this Jesus we worship, and he's, he's, he rules in heaven. He's the God of heaven. You might say, let him reign in heaven all he wants. Fantastic, great. I'm rolling down here. But this is the unique claim of Christianity. The first Christians believed that Jesus was God, but they didn't believe he was just God. They believed he was man. He was human. He is true God and true man. And they were saying that this true human, this true man, is not just ruler of heaven, he's the rightful ruler of earth. They had the Hebrew scriptures in mind. Think Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage against the Lord and his anointed? God laughs. He scoffs at all their plans. He's going to put his king on his holy hill. Meaning that the human Jesus is not just the ruler of heaven, he's the rightful king and ruler of earth. The Gospel of Matthew ends in this way. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples. So the claim isn't just, oh, there's this new God. The claim is there's only one God. And the claim isn't just that one God's ruling in heaven. It's saying that the God, man, the human one, who is God, this human being named Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified under the authority of Rome, is indeed the world's true Lord. And if that's the case, there is no earthly kingdom that does not belong to him. So you go around saying like, Jesus is the world's true Lord and he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. That's the type of claim that might get you nailed to a Roman cross. That's a much larger claim. So that's why they're suffering. But Paul says when we suffer, it's cause to rejoice it has been granted to us that we don't just get to believe, we get to suffer. Remember, there's privileges and duties within citizenship. And for the citizen of heaven, you get to believe, and Paul says, you, you get to suffer. Now, if you understand this, if you understand that idea, it will flip your understanding of human suffering and the operations of the world upside down. Because the natural default 
position of human beings is the operating system of something called retribution theology. And we've talked about this in, in the past, so we won't talk much, but it's, it's worthy of review because it's just like the natural default position of human beings. Retribution theology says that um, when good things are happening to someone, it's because they've done good things. And when bad things are happening to someone, it's because they've done bad things. Now, let me be clear. In life, oftentimes, you do good things. You work hard and you get promoted and there's a reward. So oftentimes, you're working hard, you're doing good things, and there's good things that follow. And oftentimes in life, you do bad things. You're lazy at work and you get fired, and that's a direct consequence of the bad things that you did. So it's not to say that that never happened, but retribution theology says that it always works in that manner. If good things are happening to you, it's because you're doing right. And if bad things are happening to you, something's wrong. And this is usually the default kind of emotional position of human beings. So let's say you have a string of horrible things happen to you in life, and then you go to the doctor and you get a bad diagnosis your first gut-level response for, for many people is, God, why me? What did I do to deserve this? And in that, there's an implication that there's some like, problem in the relational transactions between you and God, and now God is punishing you. Why me, God? Why is this happening to me? What am I doing wrong? Why is this befalling me? And oftentimes the inverse of that is true too. Like you're just doing good in life. Like everything's going good for you. You're killing it at work. Doing ev- everyone loves you. And it's like you begin to walk with some, uh, some pride in your step because like God's really got, God's blessing me, man. And I deserve it. You know, say hands upon me. It's funny when you say it out loud, but you'd be surprised how deep down in your soul that's actually your operating system. Bad things happen and... God, why? Why me? Now, Jesus says the rain falls on the righteous and the wicked. And then in one instance, there's a blind man who's brought to Jesus. And the people immediately run off this retribution theology operating system. And the people say, Jesus, who sinned? This man is blind since birth. Who sinned? Did he sin or did his parents sin? Because obviously if he's suffering and he's blind, There's a cause to this, and it's either the sin of him or the sin of his parents. And Jesus is like, you guys don't even get this, man. This is is all for the glory of God. You don't even know what God's about to do. So what retribution theology says is that if we suffer, like it has to be because there's something going wrong, like we're doing something wrong. But here's the thing. Remove, Remove Jesus from the book of Philippians. Who's probably within the book of Philippians like the most righteous dude? Probably Paul gives up everything, preaches the gospel, is tortured, beat up, doesn't care, keeps preaching the gospel. Like, probably a pretty righteous dude, right? Where is he? He's in prison. And he's in prison precisely because he's being faithful. His faithfulness is actually the root cause of his present suffering. Do you see how that could radically transform your understanding of the operations of the world? His present faithfulness is the cause of his present suffering. Think about today. As I speak, some of the most faithful, righteous, holy people on God's good green earth are Christians who have been faithful and find themselves in prison, tortured, abandoned, or facing death. Some of like the most faithful people are suffering 
and their suffering is precisely because they have been faithful. So, like, you can't just say, oh, human suffering is because you're doing something wrong. Now, on the other side of this, there's a way that the, the retribution theology, which is a faulty system, so that faulty system is then manipulated in order to manipulate people. And that's, on the other side of, of this, what we'd call the prosperity gospel, or teachings of prosperity. And the prosperity gospel says that basically, um, God wants to materially, like financially, bless you. And so if you're not receiving that type of blessing, it's probably because there's some root sin in your life. And because they're manipulating the system, usually it goes something like this. It's like nine times out of 10. You you don't have money? You're broke? Well, I don't know what's wrong, but something's clearly wrong. And the way you overcome that right now is you, you need to sow a seed of faith so that you could receive the blessing of God. And so what we want you to do right now is take out $100. And you give that, it's usually always to do with money, you give that to my ministry and God's gonna bless you tenfold, a hundred, a thousandfold. So you need to, so if your lack of faith is not letting the blessings, which are always material, like financial blessings, your lack of faith is holding back the rivers of God's financial blessing. So give and he'll reward you tenfold, hundredfold. Which like, is, 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 is bad and wrong on a lot of fronts, but it's, you can miss how just evil that actually is. Not only are you taking advantage of, of people who might be desperate or vulnerable, but there's, there's even more to it. Because what you are saying is that there's a blessing out here waiting for you. And the way you receive that blessing is by giving to Jesus or the ministry. And what, what is embedded in that claim is this. You are going to use Jesus to get the blessing that you really want. Do you follow this? I am going to use Jesus to get the real blessing that I want. Rather, the posture of the Christian is, Christ is the true blessing, he is my treasure, he is my reward, and because he has given me so much and he has become my treasure, earthly possessions no longer have their power and grip a hold of me, grip on me. The, the, the earthly materialistic gain that I can have, it loses its grip. It doesn't control me anymore. Therefore, I can be more generous. Do you follow this? Like, the Christian says, Christ is my blessing. Therefore, I can be more generous with earthly treasures because I got the treasure of Christ. He is the ble- I don't. I don't serve Jesus to get what I really want. That's called idolatry. I I serve Jesus because he's the blessing. And man, whether I am rich or poor, the, the money, it loses its power over me. That's what Christians claim. And so when you have that understanding and you understand that there's all kinds of present sufferings that God might be bringing into your life, and some of the, sometimes it has nothing to do with the wrong you've done. You need to be wise. Sometimes it does. And usually you'll have some good friends who could tell you, no, it's because you've been acting whack. You're lazy. That's why you got fired. Because you don't manipulate that and be like, oh, I got fired. 
I'm suffering for the sake of the advance. You're not suffering for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. You don't work hard. So, so you use wisdom to discern this. And then when you treasure Christ, you can be more free and more generous. And it just happens. You don't have to force it. It's like, man, I have so much joy. How, how can I share Christ with others? And then you can have a, a proper response like, like this. This is the apostles in Acts chapter 5 a familiar situation. They've been imprisoned and beaten. And when they had called the apostles, that's the, the magistrates, the rulers, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They get beaten up and they're rejoicing because God found us worthy to suffer for his name. Verse 42, and every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. They rejoiced in the fact that God had counted them worthy to suffer for the name. Now, how many of us, like, just be honest, like how many of you are like, you know, some of you, you get a paper cut, you curse God and, I want to curse God and die. The pain is unthinkable. It's so It's so horrible. Now, this is not to say that, like, as they're getting beaten with rods and, like, they're like, thank you, it's, it's joyous, it's happy. Like, that's not the promises. The, the promises of Scripture is not that even bad things feel good. Even torture makes you rejoice. It is to say that Christ does not promise the removal of suffering from your life in this life. There will be a day when suffering is removed. But in your present life, God does not promise the removal of suffering. His promise is that in your suffering, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He will never abandon you. He will be with you in the trial, the tribulation, the storm, the pain, and the suffering. Your great joy, your great blessing is with you there in those moments. And by his spirit empowering you to persevere and endure. The promise is that Christ will not leave you. His spirit will give you strength to endure. And one day he will remove suffering completely from your life. And so we endure present suffering in a fundamentally different way with this understanding of the gospel. It changes everything. Now, uh, what are we to, to take from this on, like on a very practical level, this idea of the people in Philippi were both citizens of Rome, and if they became Christians, were also citizens of heaven. It meant that they had to intentionally think through the two spheres or two domains that they were living in. They were citizens of this earth, citizens of Rome, and they were also citizens of the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. And those two spheres, those two domains, those two places that you live in, um, come together in your life, they meet in your life. And sometimes there's harmony between the two. Sometimes there's tension, sometimes there's all out war. So let me give you an example. Let's say in Philippi, there's a Roman law that says, do not murder. Rome says it's bad to murder people. As a Christian, as a citizen of heaven, you could affirm that, right? Like you could affirm that law, like you're not in, there's no tension there. You go, no, that's a great law. You guys know where you got that from? It's one of our big 10. You stole that idea. Like, not killing people is a good thing. So the kingdom of Rome is in that, in that area is not in tension with a Christian ethic. 
that values life and not murdering people. However, there were certainly parts of Roman law, cultural, and customs that were in tension with kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God ethics. And so the Christians in Philippi needed to intentionally think through those and identify those, and then also subsequent to that, intentionally think through how do I respond to that and live in the middle of that tension. Because sometimes you could go, no, that's great. The culture affirms this, that's great. And there's sometimes you have to say, that's wrong. That's evil. I don't do that. Because my primary allegiance is always first and foremost to Christ and his kingdom. My first and foremost allegiance is always to the king that's above all kings. Because there is an authority that I have to submit to that's in the highest of heavens. And so Paul would want the Christians to work out, how do you be good citizens in the Roman Empire? But also, how do you know when to say, okay, no, this is where there's, there's not alignment. Now, I want you to think, don't only think like with laws and like legal things. Think about cultural things. Think about um, in, in American life, how much do we consume entertainment? And what type of entertainment do we consume, right? So you could say, well, I've just adopted kind of the cultural norms of kind of engagement with entertainment that everyone else has. I'm not that bad. I'm just like everyone else. Well, if you're judging yourself by American standards of consumption, you're right in line. You're Roman, just like the rest of them. Or you can say, no, I have a different ethic. My life should be prioritized. I don't want to look at certain stuff. I don't want my eyes to see certain things. I don't want that in my life. And so there you, you say, no, I'm going to, my allegiance to Christ is more important than just being like everyone else in the culture. And so as a Christian today, you have to intentionally think through where there's overlap, where there's harmony, where there's tension, where there's massive friction. And then you have to think through how do I faithfully respond to this? Because I'm, I'm a citizen of heaven, but God also calls me to be here because to live is Christ. To die is gain, but I'm supposed to live for Christ here in my present situation. So how do I faithfully engage where there's tension? And you're gonna have to get better at this because um, if you've noticed, like in the last five years, six years, seven years, 10 years, 15 years, pick your time frame. It doesn't matter. Like, you've been running into more areas of tension, right? And sometimes right now it feels like... That's no different than the, the Christians in Philippi. It's nothing new under the sun. How do you faithfully be a citizen of heaven while also being a citizen of the kingdoms of this earth? And you have to think critically and intentionally and use wisdom and discernment. Because there's always privileges and duties associated with your citizenship. In Rome, got to vote, got to have a fair trial. Your kids got the benefits. And maybe most importantly, you, did, you couldn't be crucified if you messed up. Pretty big deal. because There's a lot of people getting crucified. Um, and with that, all those privileges, Rome expected you to advance, you know, the good news of Curios Nero. You're a Roman, you're a Roman citizen. Spread the ways of Rome. But likewise, if you're a believer, you have duties to hold fast, to walk worthy, to stand firm, to cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to give him your, your complete allegiance and loyalty. That is your duty before Christ. But that duty flows from all the privileges that he's blessed you with. 
Like what's, what are those things? You get to know Christ. You know him. You have received grace and forgiveness. You have the privilege of being called a son or daughter of the high king of heaven. Christ, the king of kings, left heavens to die in agony on a cross in order to adopt you into his family. And now you know him. You sit at the table. Grace, forgiveness, mercy, and truth. You are accepted into the family of God. And out of all of that blessing that's flowing to you, then you say, thank you, Lord. How can I serve you? Duty flows from the blessings that you've received in Christ. Lord, how could I not serve you? How could I not be grateful? How can I not be thankful? You have blessed me in immeasurable ways. How could I not? And so, as, as we prepare for communion, I want you to think about how that actually happened. How did you become a citizen of heaven? How did you become a family member in the kingdom of God? Because uh, you were not by nature a child of heaven. You're by nature a son or daughter of earth. You are by nature a son or daughter of Adam and Eve which by implication, the scripture says, you were sons and daughters of disobedience, of rebellion. The scriptures use very offensive language. It says you were actually, by nature, children of wrath. You were in the domain of darkness. You were bound in your flesh to serve the prince of the power of the air. Like it uses dark language. But it says, but God being rich in mercy and grace transfers you over from darkness and frees you from that into the kingdom of light. And you are no longer a child of wrath and disobedience. You are a child of God brought in by his grace and made a son or a daughter and brought to his table and his family. And this happens because the true citizen of heaven, the true son of God, the true king of kings and lord of lords comes to earth and the citizens of earth do what? We kill him in the worst manner possible. Roman citizens didn't crucify their people like this. It was only the outsider to them. And so Christ, the true son of heaven, dies the slave's death from earthly men and dies in agony on the Roman cross in order that he might adopt us into his family so that we might bear the title son or daughter. And you've been adopted in to his household. And when you understand all of that, Man, the response is, how can I serve you? So we as Christians in this world, in this culture, think critically. How can we intentionally live as citizens of heaven in a broken and dark situation? Let's stand as we take communion.